Welcome to the Mission Control Podcast. I'm Liana Downey, and I'm here today with my special guest, Victoria Dimitrikopoulos, who has worked in many roles, including as a consultant with Egon Zender, focused on the nonprofit and social sector space. Welcome, Victoria. Hi, Liana. It's very nice to join you here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Victoria, most recently you've been working as a recruiter or what is colloquially known as a headhunter for the global recruiting firm Egon Zender and leading their social sector practice. So Victoria, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey, your career path? It was a meandering path that brought me to executive search. I was raised in a family of diplomats and hence had only ever been exposed to problems that were of a social kind. While I was studying at university, I was also a tour guide at the United Nations where I had the opportunity to learn about a number of issues like natural catastrophes, like landmines in Cambodia, illnesses that the UN was trying to eradicate, and all these magnificent organizations. So my upbringing had been very much in that sector. But when I began my professional career, I started it in investment banking in London, in mergers and acquisitions, and later on the trading floor. And after business school, I continued still in the private sector with a strategy consulting firm, the Boston Consulting Group, where I advised companies in the tech sector, as well as uh, telecoms and financial services. So all of this was very much private sector. And I think it was interesting to cut my teeth and learn some professional skills, just basic analytical and collaborating skills over there. When one day I ended up, due to life's travails, moving and exploring new career opportunities, I ended up in a recruiter's office at Egon Zender and they popped the question. Uh, We often joke about it with my colleagues that it always hits us as a surprise. Before ending up in this profession, someone pops the question, well, have you thought about joining us? And invariably we go, ew, no, I meant a real job. <laughs> and this is, this is what happened. I was immediately intrigued though, that was about 10 years ago. I was immediately intrigued because it seemed that this profession was actually going to bring to the forefront of my activity two things that I'm passionate about. The human endeavor, how do people get organized to achieve things? And on the other hand, people. People, not only their achievements, their CV accomplishments, but how they come across, how they relate, and what propels them forward, what drives them. And hence, a little bit of psychology, which I never studied, but I've always been fascinated by. So those two things were coming together. And this idea of joining Egon Zender clicked and clicked very strongly. So that was coming to this profession. And then coming to the public and social sector side of things happened gradually. I began with assignments in Europe that covered fast-moving consumer goods, financial services, industry. But then I had the opportunity to work in Geneva for the Red Cross and not only doing search assignments, but doing team dynamic analysis and management appraisals where we go in and assess a leadership team. So it was an expansion of my world and I was hooked. So moving to the US a few years after starting my career with Egon Zender in Europe, I continued that path. I continued to come close to clients such as the World Bank, some UN agencies, 
And then within two or three years from moving here, which was in 2010, I was 100% dedicated to the public and social sector. And I was the only consultant doing that in the firm, just 100% focused on it, and especially in the US. But, but very quickly, I was joined by a colleague of mine in the New York office who began building the practice with me and taking leadership. And you've given us a bit of a sense for some of the kinds of organizations that you work with and they're big global organizations. What kinds of roles were you filling in that capacity? So there, there's C-level roles. Board, CEO, and C-level is the specialty of these select executive recruiting firms. We sometimes go two levels below the CEO, but usually it stays at that level. So for example, with clients that are in, you know, consumer or or industry, you might be looking for a CFO, a CMO, chief marketing officer, you'll be looking for divisional heads. And sometimes you'll be looking for chief operating officers, head of HR. You know, it's, it's the whole leadership team of the organization. I wanted to clarify one thing about the types of organizations. I've only mentioned by name the organizations that are multilaterals. And that is because these were the ones whom, with whom we often go out in public and advertise in publications such as The Economist that we are assisting this organization in hiring. And hence, I feel comfortable mentioning them by name. There are several other organizations, foundations, very large foundations, and non-governmental organizations, um, academic institutions, public research institutions, and other types of nonprofits whom we have assisted as well. But due to confidentiality, I'm not mentioning them by name. Yeah, that makes sense. You have to always work a little bit sort of in stealth mode, I would imagine. So given that you have that really interesting vantage point of working with organizations across the social sector on some of the most important roles that they will fill, what are some of the things that came up over and over again in terms of the kinds of people that were being, you know, are going to succeed in those roles, the talent gaps or the capacity gaps that those organizations were facing? What were some of the trends that you observed? That is a very interesting question and, uh, and one that, that kind of allows me to summarize what I have learned. I hope I can do this crisply enough. What, what is often said about the, the for-profit versus non-profit sector, and this is a conversation I had with several of my candidates in trying to attract them into these roles, is that these two worlds are very different because in the for-profit world, you have, you're able to attract more talent, you have more dynamic career trajectories, you have customers who give you feedback, if only by the power of buying or not buying your product or service. And hence, you're operating with market forces, which are pretty fluid, and the communication is pretty fluid. You also operate under the pressure of shareholders, and hence, there is tremendous pressure to perform. And the view is that in the public sector, because your outcomes will be very long-term because very often your customer doesn't have a voice. The customer can be the environment. It can be newborn children. It can be an illness that you're trying to, to contain or cure. These, your work doesn't have a customer with a voice that is as loud and clear. And often you don't have the types of budgets 
that would allow you to attract people coming out of business schools or people who, who may have accumulating assets as one of their drivers in the beginning of their career. And hence, they're, they're not able to make the choice to work for smaller salaries. So all of these challenges, which are great challenges, result in a work environment which is quite different. But it is not true in any way, and I have not encountered any lack of motivation, lack of drive, or you know, less talent. On the contrary, I've observed people with tremendous motivation and, and this will to be world citizens before they are, you know, producers and consumers. And, and that is something I've always admired. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's interesting because as you describe you are operating in a context in which you and your colleague were the exceptions in your focus on the social sector. And so you're operating in, a, in an environment where kind of business is the, the main game. That's right. And I think often, and, and I have my own experience of working in business, in government and in the nonprofit sector, is that there is often this kind of stereotype that goes in all directions about what people are like, you know, in one particular sector. And I'd echo your perspective that, you know, that there's sort of not necessarily, as I think there is, we are often led to believe in the business sector, of a neat linear correlation between capability and how much you make. Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, in the nonprofit sector, you see that all the time where people have prioritized other things. Yes. But of course, you still have immense capacity, talent, and, you know, and you have to have incredible problem solving skills because people are operating on complex social problems with really limited resources. So you've got people solving problems all the time. You also, you know, you also work with people who were transitioning. I believe, who went from, as you did, who went from the business sector to then focus their efforts and energy in the social sector. If you were talking to somebody who's listening to this podcast and thinking that they would quite like to work in the nonprofit sector, what advice might you give them about what does it take to be successful? How is the environment different? So, a couple of additional challenges first come to mind, and I want to mention them because it ties well into the advice that I would give. One of the challenges is not only that the customer doesn't have a voice, but it is that in order to bring about change on some of the thorniest issues facing humanity, whether it's poverty or illness or climate change and so on, the number of stakeholders is tremendous. Uh, anyone operating in this field will have to cooperate, persuade, and influence a tremendous amount of, of stakeholders. So that is one of the skills when we were assessing potential candidates for roles that was quite salient and sometimes even more salient than the specific expertise. I'll give you a quick example of that. During one of the assignments for an organization within the World Bank Group, the World Bank Group is composed of five large organizations and for one of those, we were looking for the general counsel. Highly technical, this group needed to provide legal advice on large infrastructure transactions. On my short list, there were two candidates who had that expertise as lawyers in large project finance types of, of assignments and experience that they had accumulated. And one of them did not. And although some colleagues with whom I had uh, tested the ideas before, before progressing with the clients had questioned this choice, I had insisted that this individual had Obama-like charisma and statesmanship in terms of 
his articulateness, his ability to cooperate, the way in which he had pulled together warring factions in associations where he was asked to be chairman and so on. So in his career, he had accumulated that core competence, which we call collaboration influencing, to such levels that I believed he would be instrumental in this role. So although our client, when the decision moment came in the meeting, was hesitating to put him forward as the favorite candidate, although clearly everyone had been tremendously impressed, they were hesitating because of that lack of specific project finance expertise. We helped the client come to a more comfortable decision of that specific candidate by shedding light on what references had said about how this person learns new things and how he is able to inspire and lead individuals who may be more of an expert than he was on specific topics, but that he was leading and hence inspiring. So this is to say that this one challenge of collaborating and influencing with a tremendous number of stakeholders is an important one in the sector. And another one that's related is diversity. There is often a lot of diversity of backgrounds in these organizations. People are coming from different countries, people are coming from different experiences, different walks of life, and hence one needs to do a lot of translation, a lot of communication in order to come across clearly and effectively. So to come after this introduction to the advice that I would give individuals, the first piece of advice would be to look inside carefully and think about one's motivation. I was having this conversation with essentially executives who had accomplished careers 20 years or so in the private sector and who were now thinking of making a switch to give back slash contribute in different ways on something that they were more passionate about now that the constraints of asset accumulation and putting kids through college and so on were a little bit behind them. There were very similar conversations with people who we we would approach for board positions, right? Someone who has a full-time job or has a domain of expertise but wants to expand their impact to other places. So the first thing is to look inside deeply at what one is passionate about because the things that will drive you in this sector are going to be different. The things that will deplete your energy during the day are going to be different. And the things that will recharge your batteries are very much your motivation inside. The impact is likely to be very long-term. It's going to be very painstaking to achieve the type of results that in the private sector we can see more clearly and more quickly. So that's the first piece of advice. The second piece of advice would be tread lightly. And that's because of what we began our conversation with, because of that, that view that coming from the private sector, one comes from a place that is more, quote unquote, advanced in terms of getting things done. And that is not the case. It's very difficult to arrive in a nonprofit like a bull in a glass house and have the attitude of, I'm here to, to, to show how it's done. So tread lightly, listen, and understand deeply what are the challenges that have prevented many others before you to achieve certain things before you set out to undertake them. That's not to say it cannot be done. And on the contrary, many organizations who come to us for for leaders in their categories are looking for that 
optimism, fresh air, and action orientation that they're hoping to bring from the private sector. So come with all of that, but come also with humility and a listening ear. Absolutely. You know, you reminded me of a conversation that I remember somebody recounting to me by a fellow who was a senior director in a corporate environment and was speaking to somebody who had taken time off and worked at the World Bank for a number of years. And this guy was like, oh, come on, you know, world hunger, like that really can't be that bad, right? You know, we're going to get four, you know, four of us guys, you know, at my level without background kind of in a room, you know, couldn't we knock this out? <laughs> and I was like, ah, yeah. <laughs> and I think there is sometimes that arrogance that comes because the truth is, I believe that solving business challenges is inherently easier. Because, you know, it's about reducing costs and increasing prices and selling more product. Like it's, you know, it's not incredibly complex, but to your point, the challenges around hunger, disease, they're not intractable. They require optimism, but they're complicated. And yeah, so I think it's, I think you're very, very apt to counsel people to just lightly come with some humility and a listening ear. I like that. Good, good words of wisdom. And what you said, uh, you know, put four of us in a room and we'll solve it. It brings me to my, my, my third piece of advice, which is bring a friend. Yes, do spread the word. Turn more people from, from the private sector to the public sector because that switch is a switch where instead of focusing on creating more things, you will be focusing on solving the most important problems of humanity. There's nothing, I am biased, admittedly, but there there doesn't seem to be much that can be more important than this. And much talent is needed, much smarts, resources, time, money, energy, all of that is needed. So if someone has gone through the thought process and has made the, the leap to the other side, then I think it'd be phenomenal if they can spread the word, talk about their experiences and make sure that other people make the same jump. Absolutely. I love that. Bring a friend. Good advice. Victoria, amongst the many things that you've done in your career, you have been and continue to be a very talented cartoonist. Can you talk a little bit about the role that that talent and that lens of viewing the world through, you know, a kind of a visual and a a lens of humour plays in your life? Oh, yes. Thank you, Liana, for this question. So cartooning, my, my father has always called them my, my little doodles in a, not, not disparagingly, but, but in an amused form that has kept that hobby of mine smaller in my mind than perhaps it is turning out to be. So for all these years, I had only kept it as a, as a side thing. As I was corresponding to friends, I would draw something that I could possibly, you know, not possibly take a photo of, for example, you know, a date that went wrong and, and, and I'm illustrating it in a humorous fashion. Or when my parents were posted, my father was an ambassador to Libya and we were studying at that time in Europe, we would fax our news back then with that technology. And whenever I would write in Greek, I have not been schooled in Greek, 
the, my faxes would just be sent back. And although I was anxiously anticipating a letter from my parents, what I would see is my own letter coming back with all my spelling errors corrected. Oh. So I, <laughs> I stopped doing that and started drawing instead. So, so that way <laughs> the comments would be more positive. So it, it had always been, that's just to say as an introduction, that it had always been a form of expression. When we all arrived at Stanford Business School, that was the first time that I actually started sharing some of those cartoons that illustrated our experience with people whom I didn't know as closely. And it was mortifying initially to have such a personal expression out there and subject to people's feedback. But I was very heartened to see that, for example, you know, although I was depicting something that I considered to be very personal, very feminine, uh, a classmate of ours from Argentina, who was a, an avid soccer player, had identified with what I was talking about. So it, it was very interesting like that to see, to see an idea take shape and go out there by itself and touch people who are very different from the person from whom that idea had originated. And then it became even professional. So when I joined the Boston Consulting Group after business school, first in San Francisco, but then transferring to Paris, France has a long tradition in graphic novels, in cartoon. I mean, they, they have a long tradition in that. And so I began illustrating for our newsletter internally. And once I came back from interviewing clients for a financial services assignment, and because one of the people that I was interviewing was so humorous, I decided to illustrate. Instead of sharing typed up notes, I shared some cartoons with my team of what had been said. And the partner on the assignment had said, oh my God, this is, this is so much more powerful. How about you know, we communicate that to the client? And so what had begun as a little bit of a, of, a, of a joke turned out to be much bigger. Several partners who were aware of my skill as a cartoonist from our internal newsletter began <laughs> asking me for illustrations to, a to give their clients. So for example, a client who was an industrial company was going to have an offsite in Greece and we provided illustrations with themes of mythology, for example, or another one which was a big public utility in France had used my cartoons. And then very recently I was even going through, I don't remember why, I was going through slides from the Boston Consulting Group that a colleague of mine was showing as he had left and one of my cartoons was still in there. So it began to become a powerful mode of communicating powerful ideas in a light way, in a, in a digestible, speedy, and humorous way. You know, and you alluded to the fact that you and I were actually at business school together. And one of the things that struck me, it's hard if you sort of touched on this, it's hard for you to say this, but, you know, my experience of great literature or great art has always been, as you talked about with the Argentinian soccer player, that sense of recognition. And I think, you know, my experience was absolutely that in your capturing of the kind of highs and lows of the business school experience, you absolutely, you know, tapped into a nerve and a resonance of the things that I personally was experiencing. And certainly I think were true for many other people. And so I think it's an incredible gift. And I'm intrigued now you're on maternity leave, congratulations. And, you know, you're not one to 
sit idly by. (laughs) My impression is that you are delving very deeply on a research project. And so I'm very interested to hear more about that research project and potentially how there might be a dovetailing in the future of your cartooning skills and what you're learning, you know, for a wider audience. Oh, yes, that's, that's really my dream. So my current research interest is the brain, and more specifically, the infant brain. It often comes under the heading early child development. But one of the things that I'm hoping to avoid is to come across as this second time mother of a young child who's so mesmerized by my little bundle of joy that I want to coo with it and and write about it. It is I think everyone has a brain, everyone has a childhood, and and everyone today, all adults, parents or not parents, are operating with software, if you will, and hardware that has been built by 30-year-olds or however old their parents were when, when when they were infants who were more or less aware of how to do things right, you know, more or less present, more or less negligent, more or less intrusive. And even today, we struggle with insecurities or, or anxieties or, for some people, more serious mental illnesses, not knowing where they come from. And I've observed, I've had the opportunity to observe this in a number of ways. And over the past 10 years, more specifically, because my own share of adverse childhood experiences brought me to a psychologist's couch. That was number one. Number two, I was raising my daughter, who's now a preteen, alone. And hence, I sought the advice of a number of child psychotherapists as I moved from France to Greece and then to the US. So I, I was very eager to get advice along the way. So I, I read up on attachment, how to maintain and strengthen her relationship to her father, for example, what attachment is, how it forms. So that was the second kind of opportunity to, to get close to the infant brain, which was through raising my my own child in difficult circumstances and then executive recruiting i mean interestingly one of the questions that i was always most curious about in the candidates that i've been meeting tremendous individuals super accomplished was what propels you forward right what is this drive where did you get that assurance that you were going to be able to tackle this big challenge that you tackled invariably their answers to that question delved back into, you know, my mother showed me that anything was possible. She was a doctor. She raised us during a time of war where she taught us to be proud of who we were, or she taught us to hide. And then when I was powerful enough, I resolved never to hide again, or whatever the story was, it tended to take root back in early childhood and family. And by, by hearing dozens, if not hundreds of these stories, and by putting them side by side with other individuals for whom the question was not what propels you forward, but what is holding you back, you know? So, so this third axis of curiosity and, and analysis over the past 10 years was showing me how our brain affects us as adults, affects everything that we're able to, to accomplish. So today, at the end, of my pregnancy and since re-experiencing over the past seven months the relentless demand of this little being. And then also by beginning to volunteer at the San Francisco Child Abuse Prevention Center, where I've had 
an opportunity to observe the wide span of behaviors of two-year-olds where you, you, can, you can very easily see how children within structured, serene environments operate so differently from children who are homeless, unfortunately, who are living in households that are incredibly unstable with one single parent who themselves are very unstable and need nurture and healing themselves before they're able to provide it to others. So, so my current experiences, as well as the experiences over the past 10 years, have made me focus on you know, what happens before you turn three years old and how can we make that better so that we unleash the potential of all humans for the generations to come? Very interesting questions and very interesting how that thread through your different roles in your career, in your parenting roles, and in the own work for yourself and the questions that you've asked is, is leading you to that path, which I personally agree is a very important question. I come there from a slightly different lens, which is that all of the issues that I work on with clients, be they homelessness or mm-hmm. joblessness or mental health issues, I come to the same conclusion that it, you know, it all points back to those first few years. We're, we're coming to a close. I would love for listeners to have an opportunity to see and connect to some of your cartoons. Where you know, are you sharing them on Instagram? Is there a place that people can see and follow your work at all? Yes. So I do put the, the cartoons that come sort of as daily inspiration. They can be on any topic. I put those on Instagram under Victoria Cartoons. And then this current research project on the brain, I've called Project Brainheart. It's a temporary name, but I created a website called Project Brainheart. And that's where I've posted cartoons that illustrate some of those difficult topics more complicated ideas. I'm trying to do it lightly and digestively, but let's let's see how it goes. I'll be very interested in getting people's feedback as comments on this site. I came across a quote recently that said, the brain is the organ with which we feel before it becomes the organ with which we think. And this is why I decided to call this project the Project Brain Heart. And this is why I decided to focus on this. Fantastic. Very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing. So on the topic of diversity, Liana, one of the almost funny, if it weren't actually sad, observations that I had over the past 10 years, but especially in the nonprofit sector, was how I came across perhaps a dozen of women whom I had approached for very senior roles. And I'll I'll mention one in particular, which we went public with, which was to become the treasurer of the World Bank Group. And I reached out to women who were working in their governments in a number of countries, very senior members of financial institutions and so on. And several of them said, I am so honored that you're calling me for this role. I don't think I'm qualified. Liana, I have not come across a single man who has ever said, I do not think I'm qualified. Once I even interviewed someone (laughs) for a role where they needed to be the head of development of a massive nonprofit organization that needed to raise and invest every year hundreds of millions of dollars. And he had raised $1 million for a zoo and was trying (laughs) to convince me that his skills were transferable. 
Yeah, very interesting. Very, very interesting. So have you got some advice for women in that capacity then? Yes, yes. It's advice that has been shared and made very popular with Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In book, which was to say women hesitate to raise their hand for a position when they think that they have part of the qualifications, but not all the qualifications. And I would say, I would concur with with Charles Sandberg is raise your hand, even if you don't have everything. That's for sure. The second piece of advice is stick with it. Even though one may feel that they are a minority, that their voice sounds a little bit different because they're more sensitive to different issues, one can feel quite isolated. A classmate of ours, actually, who was on the leadership team of Twitter a few years back, had told me how she felt that she was a lone voice amongst these bullish engineering tech bros of the Bay Area, and how sometimes that made her her commitment to stay in this team a little bit, you know, shaky, but she she held through. She stayed in. She continued to to gain importance as one of the shaping executives of the leadership team. And so I would I would say that too. Stick with it and stay and and make your voice heard. Great advice. Fantastic. So they can connect with you on Instagram at Victoria Cartoons, all one word. Yes. And then is it www.projectbrainheart.com? That's right. Fantastic. So projectbrainheartalloneword.com. Fantastic. I absolutely encourage listeners to go and check it out. Victoria is a wonderful combination of very artistic, very intelligent, as you can clearly hear. And I think there'll be some, some real pleasure for you to check out some of the work that she's doing. So thank you so much, Victoria, for joining us. And as always to our listeners, thank you for listening and for all that you are doing to change the world. If you're a leader looking for help in some of these challenging days, you can join the Mission Control community at www.missioncontrolbook.com where you'll find blogs, podcasts and a heap of other tools. I've been here speaking with Victoria Dimitrikopoulos. This is Mission Control with Liana Downey and I'll speak with you soon.